Well, if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians to begin with in chapter 6 and also to Luke's gospel in chapter 8. Ephesians 6 and Luke 8. And um, we are going to um, be looking at, I'm, I'm calling it Kingdom Warfare, the remake. It's part of our series in advancing the gospel of the kingdom. Um, but um, maybe more than that, um, one second here, uh, it's, I, I might should call it just spiritual warfare. That's how I'll, I'll refer to it, but it didn't match our series as well. Uh, and it means essentially the same thing. Um, so, oh, I, real quick, uh, there we go. Uh, so we're going to look at that, and I, I think, to be honest with you, spiritual warfare um, is one of, in, in my experience, and this goes for me as well as anybody else, either we have the wrong conception of spiritual warfare, we just have it wrong, or we have a void. We know that this isn't right over here, but we don't have anything to replace it with. And so we just kind of have this blank slate. So when the topic of spiritual warfare comes up, we envision all sorts of things, um, wonder, well, what are we exactly talking about, and well, what do these verses mean? So I hope today that I'm able to uh, lay a groundwork that would be helpful to us understanding this theme of spiritual warfare, uh, kingdom warfare, the remake. And if you would begin reading with me in Ephesians chapter 6 uh, and verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man from Many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord. Show us how things really are, that you would help us to see what we cannot otherwise see. In Jesus' name, amen. This present fiction was the title of Christianity Today's September 2021 issue, so just a few months ago. And it's a play on the 1986 fiction by Frank Peretti, This Present Darkness, which grabs its title right out of Ephesians 6.12. We read it a moment ago. The engaging and, to be honest with you, well-written book, even though theologically weak, uh, has sold two and a half million, over two and a half million copies and has wrongly influenced the modern Christian's understanding of spiritual warfare probably more than anything else in modern history. The cover story from Christianity Today provides this description of the book. Quote, Frank Peretti spins out a story about battles between angels and demons overlaying small town con- uh, a deeper conflict between Christianity and a New Age conspiracy. That, in turn, is imagined to be a deeper conflict between good and evil supernatural beings, end quote. Unwittingly, Crossway's publisher, Jan Dennis, hit the nail on the head regarding the problem that grows from this book, calling it a book for culture warriors, saying... Quote, they can hold this up and say, this is how I see the world, end quote. And unfortunately, it is how they see the world. It, is argu- it has arguably contributed to um, the inability of many evangelicals to have a conversation with people they disagree with, the impasse and dialogue between Christians of any stripe, and others in the world that they disagree with. Now, of course, it's not the whole picture. Never, never is. There's never any one whole picture of these things. It's a sampling, if you will. At the imaginative level, this present darkness teaches that people who oppose you are not what they appear to be, but are out to destroy you because they are inspired by demons and powers with a diabolical scheme to destroy the very things you hold dear. And oh no, we better... Stop them at any cost. The point of Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, however, is quite the opposite. There, Paul is instructing us that our fight is not with those people. Ours is a spiritual battle, indeed, but not to be confused with the flesh and blood standing in front of us. Misunderstanding spiritual warfare has contributed greatly to, to hamstringing the church's witness in the world. And a right understanding of it uh, is essential. It won't make it easy, however, because it is difficult, but it's essential. Spiritual warfare, or kingdom warfare, if you will, is, is very real, and like any war, it's hard. That's why it's called war. It's hard. 
A right understanding of spiritual warfare calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. We'll explore this under three headings today. First, David and Goliath, the remake. Second, the armor of God, a retake. And third, the spiritual warfare, a retake. So if you would begin with me under that first heading, David and Goliath, a remake. Now there are remakes. And then there are remakes. The not so obvious ones. For example, not only has the Magnificent Seven been remade as the Magnificent Seven, but the original Magnificent Seven was itself a remake of Seven Samurai. Just take out the Samurais and substitute Cowboys, and you've got the Magnificent Seven. Flubber with Robin Williams is a more direct remake of The Absent-Minded Professor. You've got Mail as a remake of The Shop Around the Corner, and we could go on. The Bible is actually full of remakes as well, because history is full of remakes. I mean, for instance, the Tampa Bay Rays versus the Yankees and uh, the, the uh, Red Sox is another David and Goliath story being rolled, retold every year. I mean, just one example. Um, not sure exactly how today's game with the Bucks and the Rams is going to go, but I'm sure it'll be a remake of some disaster story somewhere. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> Titanic, possibly? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am rooting for the Bucks, just so you know. <laughs> um, but how about this more obvious remake in Scripture, like Abram telling Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister, and then he does the same for Abimelech, and then Isaac does the same with Rebekah and Abimelech as well. Just the story going over and over. And of course, it's intentionally told over and over again in those ways, one after the first, so that we get the point of what's going on, that it keeps being passed on from generation to generation. The life of Jesus himself is actually a remake, at least how it's presented in the first three Gospels, of Israel's journey to the Promised Land, both Israel going through the Red Sea, through water and into the wilderness, Jesus coming out of baptism, and immediately being led into the wilderness, where both are tempted, one for 40 years, one for 40 days, and tested, one failed, one passed, and so forth. I would like to suggest to you that the story we read a moment ago of the so-called demoniac at Gerasenes, or if you're reading the other Gospels, Gadarenes. You might say, well, is it Gerasenes or Gadarenes? And if you, have, if you really get stumbled up over that question, you probably haven't been to a country that has been colonized in its history. You go to Madagascar, and every town has at least two names, some of them, most of them, probably three. And you look at a map, it's rather confusing. You go, okay, where is Tomatov and where is Tomasino? And you finally realize it's the same city. There's, you know, had to put the names above each other. And, and that's the way because you have multiple languages going on and multiple people groups, and they all call it something different. And so, yes, it's Gadarenes, it's Gerasenes, whatever you want to call it, it's the same. But I would suggest that this story is a remake of David and Goliath. That the story is commonly called the Gadarene demoniac, illustrates one problem that we have in spiritual warfare. We unite the person and the demon in our thinking. He's not the person who's tormented by demons. That's not what we call it. We call it the demoniac. Why? Because we unite them together. Well, because our Bibles usually have that subheading up there, but that's another discussion. The citizens of Gerasenes thought that the problem was flesh and blood. Just ask them. They chained the man. They kept the man under watch. They continually tried to subdue the man, and all of this to no avail, but all of their efforts were against flesh and blood. 
To be sure, the man was a nuisance. He ran around naked, screamed out in the night, lived among the tombs, which no doubt made visiting one's deceased parent more than a little difficult. He was a veritable Goliath, perpetually antagonizing the citizens of the city. But the inhabitants of Gerasenes were fighting the wrong battle, nor did they have what it takes to fight the right battle, for sure. Enter Jesus. Jesus did not consider the man before him his enemy. He looked in his face and saw a man, another human being. Twice the text calls him a man, using the word describing a human male, andros. Three times it refers to him as just a human, an anthropos. The pronoun him, in reference to this man, is usually the antecedent would be in reference to anthropos or andros, in other words, a human person in front of him. Like David, Jesus did another version of trying to use five small stones against a giant with a sword and armor, but in this remake, he shows us that the power was never in the stones, for Jesus has none, and that the man, Goliath, if you will, was never really the enemy to begin with. The townspeople, like some of us, look at this man and see a demoniac, not a human. But Jesus doesn't see a demoniac. He sees a man. Let me invite you to do a quick thought experiment with me because I think the story invites us to view it at two levels. And so I want to explore it at the level we often miss when we read through it because we already know that it's the story about the demoniac and we already know that Jesus is going to exercise a legion of demons and that's where our minds stay focused. Well, let me suggest that there's another angle that's being presented to us in this account. Let's view the story from the perspective of these nearby pig herders. The herdsmen, as they're called. They, they don't know about any demons, nor that Jesus is going to drive them out. They know there is a man who is very troubled living among the tombs and troubling the town nearby. They've seen the townspeople torment him chaining him up, doing all sorts of things to the man. And Jesus and his disciples land nearby and are walking toward the man. And the man had evidently heard of Jesus. And he may have thought, well, if the townspeople are tormenting me because I don't live as I ought, how much more is Jesus, the Messiah, the coming King, the Son of the Most High God, how much more is he going to torment me because I don't live as I ought? So what does he say when he sees Jesus? Please don't torment me, son of the Most High God. Jesus, in fact, doesn't torment the man. Instead, he asks him his name. That's about as normal as you can get when you meet somebody. I mean, imagine you're going to meet somebody that you've been told is one of the craziest, most scary creatures you could ever possibly imagine. He could kill you and the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, oh, hi, what's your name? But that's, in fact, what Jesus does. He treats him as a human, normal. For some strange reason, the man answers as if he is a Roman army, legion. But the herdsmen are not surprised, given the other unnatural behaviors this guy has. He's just crazy, so of course... Of course, we do know that Jesus did end up and does torment the demons in some sense. 
But he does so, I would argue, by not tormenting the man. And that's crucial, I think, to understanding what's going on here. After some other conversation, the man, the once giant problem, is sitting there clothed and in his right mind. At least he gets to keep his head in the remake. (laughs) Works out a lot better. What exactly did Jesus do? Well, he walked toward the man. He asked him his name. He spoke calmly with him. He did tell the unclean spirits to leave, but that seems... All three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, de-emphasize Jesus speaking or doing anything. You see, the way our king deals with his enemies, his Goliaths, if you will, is first this. He does not confuse the flesh and blood before him as his enemy. He does not confuse the flesh and blood before him as his enemy. Jesus treated the man as a lamb being slain, not a lion conquering, as if Jesus himself were a lamb being slain, not a lion conquering, which is how spiritually, I would argue, he was in fact a lion conquering those spiritual forces. There are two extremes with regard to spiritual warfare in our day that produce the same result. On one extreme is to deny spiritual reality. There's really no such thing as demons. Everything has a physical explanation. There are no spiritual beings. And if there are no demons, then flesh and blood is, is the problem, and it's the only thing we can fight with. It's all that can be the problem. When we think they're out to get me, we mean the people. They're out to get us. <laughs> the other extreme is to have the this present darkness version of reality which is to think that my opponent is acting as an agent of the devil himself and the problem he presents is so much bigger than what I think I'm hearing from that person. In fact, what they're really out to do is destroy me, not just what they are saying. And the Christian life becomes us against the world. Who is your demoniac? I'm serious question we should ask ourselves. Who do we view the same way the townspeople viewed this man? Many of us look at others that way, but that's not how Jesus looked at him. Kingdom warfare is not binding people hand and foot as they did this man. It is not combative engagement with the person themselves. Jesus did none of that. Who do we look at as the enemy? Is it someone in the church who, if they just stopped behaving the way they behave, things would be better? Or is it your children who, uh, if they behaved a certain way, would be better? Is it those people who are ruining our society, those who, in your thinking, are out of their minds? Who do we look at as a pile of problems, as a project? Do you see a person or do you see a problem? So what is spiritual warfare? Let's turn back to our text in Ephesians 6, and I want to pick up where I left off with verse 13. Under the heading, The Armor of God, a retake. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as 
Shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, Paul says, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. A retake in movie parlance is when you shoot a scene, but something is wrong, so you do a retake. You shoot it again. I want to offer a retake on the armor of God compared to what we often hear it presented as. And I will tell you up front and warn you that if if I offend in what I'm about to say, I do so lovingly. Um, I I get it. We, We... We've all got our minds tangled in all sorts of things we've heard and what we come up with, but I think we need to revisit, do a retake on the armor of God. When Paul talks about putting on armor, the armor of God, he is not talking about the kind you get at the Christian bookstore that comes in a box, looks like something out of uh, the medieval age, um, a knight's armor, if you will. He's, he's not talking about that. Um, But neither is he talking about imagining yourself putting it on this armor in some sort of morning prayer ritual. Though I would argue that prayer is clearly involved, and we'll talk about that momentarily. We we, we don't put on the armor of God as some or or through some mental exercise uh, in preparation for prayer. Or preparation for the day. We put on the armor of God either through actions or preparation for actions bathed in prayer. We put on the armor of God either in actions or in preparation for actions bathed in prayer. Paul isn't the first one to speak of this armor. He's borrowing wholesale from Isaiah 59. He's just taking it and using it. And so I would present to you, though I don't have time to go through all of Isaiah 59, you should spend time there if you want to understand what, how armor is being used as a metaphor here. Um, briefly, after a scathing rebuke in Isaiah 59, after a scathing rebuke for violence and their treatment of one another and the injustices perpetrated upon the innocent and the oppressed, Isaiah, and that, this covers the first 15 verses, what I'm saying here. He, he describes how God's people hope for justice, but there is none for salvation or deliverance from their troubles caused by the violence and the injustice, and it doesn't come, and truth is lacking. And then starting in verse 16, the Lord describes how His own arm would solve the problem. He would wear righteousness as a breastplate. His deeds of righteousness would be right out front, in other words. It's the first thing you would see. It's, it's not like I'm wearing this idea called righteousness and it's, it's my breastplate. Or I'm wearing this word that's etched on a piece of metal and it's my breastplate. No, I'm wearing righteousness which is deeds of loving action toward my neighbor. 
so out front in my life that it's like my breastplate. You throw something at me and a loving action is the first thing it's going to come into contact with. That's what it means for it to be a breastplate. And salvation, or the deliverance the people are asking for that seems to have vanished. The rescue from their troubles that has disappeared. That salvation, that rescue would be His helmet. In other words, justice is right out in front with Him. Salvation, delivering people from their troubles, is what you see when you look at Him. Now, time won't allow for me to make all the connections from Isaiah, and not just 59, but other places as well. But I, I think you get the point that if this is how Isaiah is using these pieces of armor, when we fast forward to the New Testament, we can't just suddenly make them something other than that. In Ephesians 6, Paul is telling us to clothe ourselves with a way of life that is the essence of the kingdom or spiritual warfare. The, the word meaning... Fasten, or gird yourself in other translations, with the belt of truth, was also, that word was used metaphorically to say, ready yourself for action. So to fasten the belt of truth around your waist is to ready yourself for action by, with the truth itself. Truth versus the lies that we have produced and the injustices that Isaiah spoke about. And since the same breastplate of righteousness Jesus wore the same breastplate of righteousness, I would suggest that it is not imputed righteousness. No. Jesus defeated the devil, we're told in Acts 10.38, by going about doing good. In other words, he wore righteous deeds, just deeds, right out there where you could see them the most. And by doing so, he defeated the works of the enemy. And so should we. Not to be seen by men, but to bring hope to the world. And what is this readiness that comes from the gospel of shalom, the gospel of peace? It is read, the readiness to live out the reign of Jesus everywhere His reign is proclaimed. It's readiness that comes from this proclamation of the reign of God and Jesus Christ that brings shalom to the world. It's readiness. To live out the reign of Jesus everywhere His reign is proclaimed. These are our shoes because we must be ready to act in order to move. If Donna gets home, she's been out for a while, been at the store or usually three stores just to get her shopping done for groceries because you got to get this deal here and this deal here and that deal here and the car is loaded up with various bags of groceries and so forth and she walks in the door overloaded with stuff and says, Honey, can you help me get some more groceries? If my shoes aren't on, I'm not ready. And usually, of course, I don't have my shoes on because one of the first things I do is kick my shoes off when I sit down because I don't really like having them on. It's born in Hawaii. What can I say? You're in around barefoot for the first two years of my life. And, and so I get them on, but of course, she's wanting them in. So in the process of getting them on, can you take the trash out? I need it out right now, but I'm not ready. I don't have my shoes on. Got to get the shoes on. So we have to have our shoes on. With what? With a readiness to live out the reign of Christ wherever it is being proclaimed. 
to do as Jesus said. Because you see, if we only say the gospel, but we don't live it, it's a hollow gospel. It's an empty gospel. And what is the shield of faith? Well, first off, that little plastic armor of God thingy you got over there at the Bible bookstore, you can throw that shield out. Um, that's not the image that is being painted here by Paul, this sort of shield that goes with a knight's armor. Rather, the shield that's spoken of was rectangular. It was about four feet tall and, and, and in rectangular shape. The, the front was covered in leather and wet thoroughly with water before the battle, knowing that the ending a wall on the front. Last Kingdom, anyone watch that? You see that being done in some of the warfare. Well, they lock those shields together. And then those in the second row and beyond would lock their shields together and turn them up and join the front row so that there's a complete ceiling over them. And they could take the first wave of all that the enemy would send with virtually no casualties. As long as they stayed together. As long as they stayed together. You see, this has everything to do with why in chapter 4, Paul said, make every effort to pursue the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Why? Because if you stay together, you quench the fiery darts of the enemy. But the moment he can get you divided, he wins. He wins. In fact, all of these instructions that are given in chapter 6 about the armor of God and all that we are to do, they're all given in the second person plural, which means instead of saying you, he's saying you. Of course, that's a problem we have in English because we have you and you. So what he's really saying is y'all, you need to do this together. Put on the armor of righteousness, uh, uh, the breastplate of righteousness together. You see, those good deeds aren't just what you do individually. It's what we do. It's what we gather together. It's, it's something that comes as we stay united and focus on living out the reign of Jesus together. When we stand together to destroy the devil's works, we will actually succeed. When we stand together going to battle his lying, oppressive, wicked, greedy, unjust ways in the world, we can't be defeated. Jesus wore deliverance as a helmet, salvation as a helmet. He had it so up front, that is what you saw when you looked at his face. Likewise, the church is to wear salvation of every kind, not just spiritual or physical, but human rescue in such a way that when people see us, they see rescue. The only offensive weapon that we're given is the sword of the Spirit. And to make sure that we don't somehow think that's weaponizing the Holy Spirit against people. He tells us what it is. It's the Word of God. Probably needed to say that, no doubt. You see, it's not all your argumentative rhetoric that is going to change the world or win a spiritual battle. Nor is it your word, but His. Don't confuse apologetics as good as they are, and they do have their proper place, and it's a good place. But don't confuse them with spiritual warfare. We don't fight people's unbelief. We can't win that battle. Last month, we had a fifth Wednesday. That's where we gather together. Every time there's five Wednesdays in a month, we come together to pray as a church. Maybe we should do it every month, but 
there's only four of those, so we'd have to call it something else, uh, you know, <laughs> Fifth Wednesday. But we come and we pray, and in the course of that evening, I was struck, because somebody else read it and talked about it briefly, but I was struck by the account of Moses striking the rock. He was told to speak to it. Instead, he struck it. He, he didn't seem to think speaking was enough. Sometimes, let's admit it, instead of just sharing God's word and trusting it to do the work, we just want to get out something and beat them. <laughs> of course, we don't actually do that, but that can creep into our hearts so quickly. Are we content with gently speaking the truth? We're all prone, myself included, to thinking that God needs our help. He doesn't. We must do all of this bathed in prayer, for we cannot do any of it on our own, in our own strength. And this brings us back to kingdom praying, praying that we would indeed do God's will in the earth as it is in heaven. So yes, bathed in prayer, for we could never actually wear this armor through the deeds of our life apart from prayer that joins us to God and His will and the power that He provides to do it. And that leads to our third and final point, spiritual warfare retake. This will be brief. But I want to now just kind of back up and rethink spiritual warfare as a whole. How is it done? And it takes all that we've talked about so far. So if you would, read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. What, exactly what ways? By great endurance. Enduring what? In, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. This sounds like a breastplate of righteousness to me. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. I know it's dangerous when you start quoting Mao Zedong, but, Mao Zedong, but, but I'm not doing it favorably, so don't worry. But he said in his little red book, Revolution is not a dinner party or writing an essay or painting a picture or doing embroidery. It cannot be so refined, so leisurely and gentle, so temperate, kind, courteous, restrained, and magnanimous. A revolution is an insurrection, an act of violence by which one class overthrows another. That Mao was a wicked man with wicked deeds is without question. But what he says here is not particular to his communism. This is how revolution and kingdoms work in this world. Even the American Revolution was an act of insurrection of violence in which colonialists overthrew continentalists. There is a difference of end or purpose or goal, but not a difference of means. 
However, with Christ's kingdom, not only must there be a difference of end, there must be a difference of means. In other words, we must never confuse the ways of earthly kingdoms to be the ways of God's kingdom. In fact, not only are we not allowed to kill someone, we aren't even allowed to be angry with them or call them an idiot. Because to do so is to take up the same means as the worldly kingdom does. As charged. <laughs> On the way to church, maybe this morning for some of us, right? Not me this morning, but, you know, not uncommon. Helps to have somebody riding with you. Um, <laughs> Violence has certainly been tried, and there are other ways that we mimic the worldly kingdom's power. Winning people by means other than the gospel, I would say, maybe always, certainly often, leads us to worldly ways of violence in some fashion or another. Jesus calls us to a different way of dealing with our opponents. Paul modeled this different way of dealing with his opponents, of doing battle. Who would think that great endurance of afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger are weapons of spiritual warfare? Well, apparently Paul did. Or that deeds of purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech are in fact weapons that conquer kingdoms. Then an abundance of such actions of righteousness could be referred to as weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Who would think it. But Paul did. That honor and dishonor, slander and praise, being treated as impostors despite being true, or that being sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, or poor yet making many rich could be considered spiritual warfare. Paul, that's who would think such a wild thing. And I think he got it from Jesus. These are the means by which God works most powerfully, not just when other means won't work, but in fact, because no other means are His means. He doesn't, this isn't like plan B, hey, try all the human stuff first, and if that doesn't work, why don't you try some of this suffering stuff and being kind and, no, no, no. Start here, stay here, never leave here. These are the ways of God's kingdom. The question for me when I find myself facing difficulties is whether I bail on faithfulness or hang in praying, and usually it's a mixed bag. So we have to hang in like Jesus did praying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, if there's any other way, you know I'd love another way. But not my will, your will be done. A huge uh, contributing factor to the impasse in dialogue that Christians are having both with each other and with the world has to do, I would argue, with our wrong view of spiritual warfare. When we view the person before us, a church member, a family member, even a spouse, or maybe a group of people, those liberals, <laughs> as the problem... We try to bind them with boundaries, a list of rules to follow, or ways they have to behave. We try to moralize them or 
uh, uh, reason them into the kingdom. You can't moralize people into the kingdom. They tried that with the demoniac guy, you know? He's like, let's chain him up and let's... No. Paul said he demolished arguments for sure in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, but his point was that he did it, or he did not do it in the conventional fleshly ways, but through meekness and gentleness, through suffering and affliction. The same way Jesus demolished the power of Rome by dying on a cross. We are called to see the person before us as human and to treat them as objects of God's grace and not to think that our battle is with flesh and blood. Let me just say a couple of things in in closing. The next time you go to community group, which I know it might be a month or so off at this point, but the next time you go to community group hoping that, well, you know, that difficult person doesn't show up and hinder the fellowship and all the conversation and so on, Prepare to endure, to maybe be left a little hungry for the fellowship you wanted because maybe instead you'll get the fellowship you needed. Prepare to be patient and kind, to genuinely love, to treat them as the human they are and not the collection of problems that need to be cured that we often tend to think. The next time... The single mom with unruly children who always seems overwhelmed sits next to you. Don't view those children as problems that need fixing and to be quiet, but as humans. And finally, you know, political leaders, they know that they have to balance war and peace. Presidents know they have to balance war and peace. Presidents are rarely more popular than when a war begins, and rarely less popular than when it drags on for a long time. War may be exciting on the front end, but never after many years, and the same is true for spiritual warfare. We might leave today thinking, okay, I can endure, I can can be kind, I can do this. Oh yeah, that'll work for a week, two, month, maybe six. But when it drags on for years, well... It likewise calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. Let's pray. Waver where the battle rages, but to remain strong in Christ with readiness to act and live out the reign of Christ where the gospel is proclaimed with deeds of righteousness as our breastplate, with rescue as our helmet. Lord, this armor of God is not about us, it's about you and your kingdom and how it sets out to destroy the devil's works. Lord, help us to, like like Christ did, to be able to look in the face of our worst enemy, our greatest threat, and see the person before us and love the person before us through the love of Christ and indeed be willing to suffer in order to love them forgive them in Jesus name Amen